Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Midnight Massacre. On July 20th, 2012, James Holmes walked into the midnight showing of The Dark Night Rises in Aurora, Colorado, and opened fire on the theater patrons methodically killing 12 people and injuring 70 others. Like the mass shootings which proceeded that night and those that have occurred since, the public response was swift and predictable. Stricter gun laws, red flag laws, and more money for mental health. Politicians searched for any benefit that could be gained from the tragedy. The surprise was that, in this case, the perpetrator was, in fact, in the care of a mental health professional at the time of the massacre. In the book Aurora, psychiatrist Dr. Lynn Fenton tells her story of treating James Holmes to Carrie Drobin. Through Dr. Fenton's session notes and her conversations with Ms. Drobin, we get to peer into the mind of Holmes as he was meticulously planning the massacre. After listening to this podcast, you can decide, was Holmes insane or just plain evil? Well, uh, good morning, uh, or afternoon, or evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Murder Most Foul. My guest today is Carrie Drobin who is an attorney and is a co-author of an interesting book, uh, especially in this time and age. Uh, the case is, is only about 10 years old, but it seems like it's been a lifetime of massacres and murders and innocent people being, uh, being killed and us all trying to figure it out, whether it's guns or whether it's psychology, how we're going to fix it. This case is the Aurora uh, theater, movie theater shooting. Uh, during the uh, showing of The Dark Night Rises. And uh, so we're going to get into that now. Welcome, Carrie Drobin. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So let's start with, again, um, how you became uh, a co-author of this book, which is the story of the of the case itself, but delves into the interaction of Dr. Fenton with uh, James Holmes prior to the massacre. Well, so I, um, I had been writing, I've written uh, a number of true crime books, and I actually had pitched a completely different story to uh, my agent, who at the time had uh, Dr. Fenton's story um, kind of sitting on her desk and said, I need a writer, and would you be interested in writing the story? It seemed to be right up my alley. I love criminal pathology and um, had written a lot of books about um really dangerous people. And so this really seemed like it was right up my alley. And it is 
Dr. Fenton's story, so the story of the, of the mass shooter, James Holmes, is, is told through that lens of what happened to her. She was the only, she, I think, is the only psychiatrist who has actually been publicly outed in, in the history of the United States. And so she was publicly outed and she was able to tell her story, what it was like to treat a mass shooter. So it's the book is really, it's a bird's eye view into the life cycle of, of a mass shooter. And so that's what makes it so fascinating and compelling. And again, a little background uh, for those who don't, you can just look back and see it again. It was, it was a horrific, uh, not that they're not all horrific, but in the planning in the reasoning behind it, because all this has come out through her pre-investigation, uh, if you will, her pre-treatment of him, and then coming out in the trial, uh, where again, obviously the, the attorneys were trying to get him, in, you know, off on an insanity plea. So nothing was held back of how what he what was going on in his mind, how he planned it, how he booby trapped his house so he could escape, and yet, unlike some of these, he did not try to go for. Uh, self-inflicted suicide or suicide by cop he gave up when he was cornered and 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 went on so that's the 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 background uh you know again and this happened in aurora uh colorado and correct me if i'm wrong columbine which happened before that's colorado as well right yeah and it, the book is great and it, it does go into the detail we're going to try to only skim that i'm going to keep talking about the book in all my podcasts i say i do 45 minutes it does no justice to any book i've ever uh covered so you've got to get them there are pictures um i'll ask you maybe some inside questions as we, as we go along whose idea was the quotes from the movie at the top of the chapters oh it, it was mine um i i oh, actually it's brilliant yeah, thank you. It is. Thank you. I, I, I wanted to create a story that um, was not only chronological, because I think that's very important to the, the history of this, of, of this book, and, and, and particularly Dr. Fenton's role in this as the treating psychiatrist. So I was building the suspense in the story. So we meet James Holmes, and we kind of flip-flop back and forth between what's going on inside James Holmes' head, what he's doing. He was a a brilliant doctoral student enrolled in the uh, neurosciences program at the same university that, that Dr. Fenton was at. And he was basically be, you know, he was under the tutelage of probably the most brilliant minds in the country, you know, his professors, his fellow colleagues, and he was there ostensibly to study his own mind. And that was one of the theories that was, <laughs> that was advanced is that he, he committed this mass murder and, and deliberately survived the mass shooter so that people could study. It was like a portrait in evil. Um, so, so it's really fascinating. So I did use uh, the quotes from the movie to kind of build up to what was going on in his mind. And I also used uh, kind of the ticking time bomb, the clock. I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. You know, the days, this was like so many days before the massacre and what was known at the time, because that's very important to, to Dr. Fenton's story is that she only knew what he was telling her, you know, and that's, that's kind of the rub of it. You know, how, how was she to know that he was planning this, this mass murder? He didn't tell her, he didn't share it. He was a very 
peculiar person. <laughs> in fact, um, I describe him in the book as he was sort of a system, like a robot. A robot. He would show up in her waiting area looking very much like a dead body. He would just like sprawl out in her uh, waiting area, very stiff, very mechanical, very robotic. And that was sort of the way he presented himself even in conversations with her. Very stilted, monosyllabic words, not giving a whole lot of information. So she really couldn't get a lot from him. Um, and this is actually a, a pretty rare uh, point uh, to make is that a lot of these mass shooters don't seek out any type of treatment. So the fact that he did seek it out, or at least was referred, he was referred to a social worker initially. And he was referred because his professors thought he needed help with public speaking. Part of his doctoral program was to give presentations. And he had a lot of trouble giving presentations and public speaking. So they thought he exhibited a lot of anxiety. And, and they thought, you know, we'll refer him to a social worker who was the, the university's therapist, and maybe she'll be able to help him. But when he saw the therapist, um, she said, you know, this, this guy is really different. and <laughs> We need to keep him in the system, which was sort of code for, we need to really monitor him and watch him because there's something seriously wrong with this person. So, you know, Dr. Fenton received him and she thought she was going to see somebody who was extremely anxious and nervous and exhibiting the, the, the characteristics of somebody that would, would be anxious, but he wasn't. You know, he presented very differently than, than what she was, you know, the information that she was given. So, so that's kind of interesting in and of itself that he was referred by somebody, by his professors, came to her and really didn't exhibit any of those qualities. But she also, like, she involved colleagues. She conferred with colleagues. And I think one of them or more than one actually came and sat in as things progressed. And she got more concerned, not that, wow, you know, in, in six months, he's going to cause a massacre. Just again, his it's her patient. And she's trying to, you know, do the best. But at the same time, she's not really comfortable with him. Right. So Dr. Fenton was, um, she really didn't like James Holmes, you know, and she had a lot of trouble uh, connecting with him. And she was uh, a psych, I mean, she was the head of student mental health. She was very likable. You know, students really wanted to be, you know, either part of her classes or part of her presentations. I mean, she was a, she, she gave presentations on mass shootings. So she was the expert on this. And so for her to have difficulty communicating with James Holmes was really unusual. She couldn't get him to divulge any information. It was like pulling teeth. You know, she, she tried all of the, the usual ways that she would get people to open up and he just wouldn't do it. And so she thought for the benefit of James Holmes, that maybe she would consult with a male colleague. Maybe he would open up to a man more than he would open up to her. So she brought in, a, you know, her supervisor and her supervisor came in and had very similar conclusions, but he was able to at least communicate a little bit more than Dr. Fenton was, but they really, I mean, you know, Dr. Fenton had six sessions with him. That's it. And so in those six sessions, just got a, a visceral feeling from him that he was, there's something very wrong with him, not mentally necessarily, but just sort of this, almost like he exuded this evilness. And that was something that was also really unique and interesting for a psychiatrist to come to that conclusion that, Hey, you know, maybe this person is not mentally ill, but maybe there's something else going on here. Like maybe he's just evil.
Madness, as you know, is like gravity. All it takes is a little push. He, one of the things I found fascinating, again, in the book, just because the way it's written, I can't hear it, uh, but at one point, again, these are just standard questions the psychiatrist, psychologist is probably going to ask, do you, do you want to hurt yourself? Do you want to kill yourself? I mean, if, especially if someone's really depressed, have you considered suicide? All, you know, all those kind of questions, I'm guessing, are asked. And, and at one point, she asks, do you consider hurting yourself? And in the book, it says, I wouldn't hurt myself but myself is in italics. Do you, is that an editorial decision or did she feel, Dr. Fenton, that he was saying, well, you know, I don't want to hurt my, you've asked a question, I don't want to hurt myself. So is it left to the reader uh, to, to think what that was or was it clearly that he was correcting her that I might hurt someone, but I'm not going to hurt me? It was clearly, it was actually that those sections were taken almost verbatim from her notes. So it was very, um, well, it was very disturbing. But what was uh, interesting that Dr. Fenton noted was she said, you know, he came in with thoughts of killing other people. And she said, it's not actually that unusual to have somebody come in with obsessive thoughts of killing either themselves or someone else. But what was different and unique about Holmes was that he didn't seem to mind having these obsessive thoughts of killing other people. Most people have them and they, they want to get rid of them. You know, they don't want to be plagued by this, this obsession to kill people, but he actually didn't mind it. And he thought of killing, in fact, there's, a, I think, a passage in the book where he describes uh, killing very similar to eating broccoli. You know, it's the same feeling, it's the same emotion, he doesn't have any disparity between them. And he had, I mean, he didn't share any of this with, with Dr. Fenton, but later on, you find out that his whole purpose and reason for wanting to kill people was very methodical and calculated. You know, he, he believed that killing people, certain people had different points and that he would accumulate values. So there was human capital that, you know, he was, he was out to kill people to acquire human capital. And that was his theory. So it wasn't a random thought. He had it from age 10, he says, you know, he wanted to kill people and he had a methodical plan of how he was going to do it. This town needs a better class of criminal. I'm going to give it to him. Her last session was her most terrifying with him. Not that she was afraid of him, but that she was afraid about what he was, you know, he had, he had just flunked his oral exams, which were a huge deal in the neuro, for a doctoral student. And she believed that he would be able to retake the exam, but he didn't want to retake it. He had no interest in retaking it. In fact, he told her he was done. And so she worried about whether he had, you know, what was he going to do? Did he have a job? Did he have a place to live? Because once he was done, he was going to be kicked off the campus and she would no longer have any way to monitor him or know what he was doing. And so it, it concerned her so much, his sort of, you know, laissez-faire attitude that she wanted to find anything, you know, something that would help her figure out what was going on in his head you know so she was consulting not only with her supervisor but with professors she even violated HIPAA and called his mom 
you know, to find out was he, was he always this way? You know, was he always, was he kind of born odd or did he become this way? Was there some kind of psychotic break happening? What was going on here? She was that concerned. And she consulted with campus police. They had a, a beta team on campus, which is a threat assessment team. You know, so she, she really did everything she possibly could within her, you know, her constraints. She did not put him on a 72-hour mental health hold, which is what she was completely vilified for, because she didn't have the criteria. You know, there had to be an imminent threat. He had to have a specific plan, a specific target, and he didn't have any of that, not that he had revealed to her. So, you know, what's what's really disturbing and, and um, in retrospect is that during these six sessions that he was seeing Dr. Fenton, he was amassing an arsenal of weapons. And so she knew none of that. And that's really critical for, for the reader, for the people to understand that she was the probably the, the most renowned psychiatrist in, in that university in the country. You know, and he's scoring like the top 1% of her class. And she knew none of that. People look so different once you don't care about them anymore. So the, the conversation that um, his mother has with her is, I, she basically says, I've been waiting my whole life for this phone call. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, his mother, and I really have a lot of empathy for his mother and, and really the mothers of mass shooters because there's so much that they don't see because it's, you know, I mean, and this was true for the, the Columbine killers as well. I mean, there's just so much in hindsight that, that, that people can, can uncover and discover, but it's never obvious or revealed to the parents. But, you know, so people ask, well, what, you know, what can you do now? Like, what are, what are some of the, the ways that we can maybe identify or prevent this in the future? And, and so I, I call this, there, there are always signs, there are always leaks, but they're not necessarily to the parents, you know? So the leakages are, you know, what are the writings? What's happening on social media? You know, who, who are they bragging to? Um, there, there's somebody that knows something. And that's really what people need to pay attention to. You know, it's easy to point to Dr. Fenton. Or it's easy to point to, you know, Holmes's mother, but they're actually not the culprits. There were signs way before that. And in fact, in this book, um, Holmes had a girlfriend and he broke up with his girlfriend and he had uh, lots of communication with his girlfriend. In fact, some of that communication revealed his theory of human capital. And his girlfriend at the time says to him, are you getting help for this? Are you seeing somebody? <laughs> but she doesn't take that one step further, you know? So it's, there are there are hints to this and and that's that's the kind of call to action where people need to really be paying attention to a lot of the in the mass shootings some of them are very impersonal someone on the top of a tower somewhere someone just spraying a, you know a, randomly spraying a, a hallway or a parking lot or something not that that makes it any less personal but it was everything about him as you say very methodical so he's walking so his carrying it out at midnight walking into the into the theater 
uh, with all the, the, the ammo and stuff he needed, it became very personal. Tell us how he methodically then carried out this horrible, horrible massacre. Yeah, so what's really interesting about Holmes is that he really, and this is what um, sunk his insanity defense, um, because he really had an awareness, he knew exactly what he was doing. And even before he entered that movie theater on uh, July 20th, <clears throat> he thought about the different targets that he was going to maybe hit. And he thought, you know, there can't be random targets. It has to be specific. You know, he called it the cruel twists of fate. Like some people are going to get caught up in the, in the volley of bullets, but, you know, that's just the casualties. That's the casualties of doing business, so to speak. But he thought about different methods. He thought about bombs and he thought bombs are too messy. You know, um, they're too regulated, cause too much suspicion. He thought about serial murder, believe it or not. Um, he thought that would be too personal, too much violence, and it was e easily caught, and there would be few kills. And then he thought about um, an airport or a movie theater, and he ruled out an airport because airport had too much security. It would be too difficult for him to escape. So he zeroed in on the movie theater because of its proximity to um, his ability to have his weapons readily available. You know, he planned all of this. And, and let's not forget, there were two crime scenes here. The first crime scene was in his apartment. So he really planned this. He got bomb-making materials. He created homemade napalm bombs, which he put together in little um, canisters. He, he would cut off the different um, plastic bottles and fill them with napalm. And he spread that out in his apartment. So his apartment was like a tinderbox. And he was hoping that first responders would come to his apartment and, and get blown up and basically present a decoy so they wouldn't be able to come to the movie theater. So he had all of that rigged and planned the same night that he entered um, the movie theater in Aurora. So when he enters the movie theater, he, has, he is armed to the teeth. He has ordered ballistic gear, a gas mask. He's taken a, um, a painkiller so that in case he's shot, he's not going to feel the pain he wants to survive he brings two glocks one he keeps in his car for the aftermath and he has scouted out this movie theater ahead of time so let's not forget that and the reason that he chooses the movie theater is because the door the back door is broken which is so sad i mean if only if only right but the back door is broken so he can prop it open so he can actually buy a ticket and, and you have to envision this horrific scene. It's, it's just, it's so horrible. But he, he arrives there on the premiere of The Dark Knight. It's a, you know, happy moviegoers. They're excited to be there. It's a midnight premiere. They're dressed in costume. There's popcorn. The movie theater is packed. He buys a ticket. He enters the movie theater. He pretends to be one of the moviegoers. He waits for the previews. And then he fakes a phone call. He leaves the movie theater where he has now stashed his rifle and his shotgun, puts on his gas mask, he puts on headphones, so he's listening listening to infected mushrooms becoming insane. I mean, how ironic is that, right? And that's a techno beat. So he's listening to this techno beat as he slips back into the movie theater and starts spraying. Whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger.
And, and that's when pandemonium breaks out. It's completely chaotic. There are people screaming. There are bodies falling. There's blood everywhere. People are trying to escape. And he's blocked the entrances. So he's just got, you know, free for all. And when his first gun is empty, he picks up the shotgun or the rifle. I forget which order it is. But And then he starts spraying. And the only reason it stops is because the gun jams. So the first responders are having trouble getting to the movie theater. That's another reason. He actually clocked the estimated time of arrival from the police department to the movie theater. And there was a, a curb, a, it was a grass, grass uh, area around the movie theater and a curb that blocked a lot of the cars and the ambulances from coming in. So they couldn't even get there. So this is the other extraordinary thing about this, this story is that the police officers who arrive at the scene are actually the ones transporting the wounded to the hospitals. They're literally putting them in their patrol cars and taking them to the hospital because time is of the essence and the ambulances cannot get to them. And probably the most eerie sound of all that I put in the book, because it just really horrified me, is that when the police get there, all they can hear are cell phones ringing. All of the dead and the wounded that have left behind their cell phones and nobody can get to them. People look so different once you don't care about them anymore. He's easily captured. He plans to be captured. That's what he wants. In fact, the police need to enlist him later on because it takes four days for them to disarm the bombs in his apartment. They're so complicated that they that even the bomb squad can't unravel the bombs. So they need his help. So yeah, I mean, Holmes actually plans it. He wants to be captured. He wants to be studied. <laughs> I mean, that's how insane, really, this all is. But it's not insane, you know, under the legal term. It's, it's very calculated, methodical, and he wants people to study him. He warned them not to go there, right? I mean, he tipped them that, that the place was booby-trapped. They didn't actually yes. start to go in and something happened, right? So that, thank God, he whatever made him change his mind about letting the, the cops go to his place and, and add more carnage. Uh, do we get any indication from him, the trial, anything, why he, he tipped them? Well, you know, it's really interesting as to why he suddenly wanted to cooperate or why he felt it was important. I mean, there are lots of different theories on it, but one of the strange things about him was he really had an affinity toward children. And he was very um, distraught, actually, that he had shot a six-year-old girl in the movie theater because he's he really deliberately and this is what he says later deliberately chose that time and that that movie theater and that you know that movie specifically so that children wouldn't be in the movie theater which is crazy so so that they use that so the officers and the the agents use that information to try to coerce him into or coax him into giving up information about the bomb in the apartment or the bombs in the apartment. And so for whatever reason, that's, that seemed to work. And so he was able to, to really, you know, he was very condescending when he talked to them, but he was able to help them disarm the bombs. And, and it was quite a task. Now, this now, of course, goes far and wide very quickly, even though it was midnight and you've got parents 
of people who were were you know, loved ones. Let's put it that way: loved ones of people who were at the movie theater, distraught and and destroyed. Certainly, his mother. But now, out of the blue, tell us this part: what it's because it's chilling. When when Doctor Fenton is told by a colleague, "Did you hear X? Did you hear Y? You know who did it." So she is. Um, she gets a phone call at like six in the morning. And uh, it's her supervisor, her colleague, who actually was one of the consulting psychiatrists. And he says, did you see the news? And she turns on the news and she sees this, this horror. And the, um, her supervisor says, it's our guy. It's Holmes. And so that is the, I mean, that's like this devastating impact to her that all of a sudden, you know, the, the guy that she had been treating goes out and does the very thing that she worried about and tried you know i mean not that she knew he was going to do it but she had she knew he was evil and had some you know something wrong with him and was so um wanting him to stay in the system so she could help him that she actually even offered to help him for free to get treatment so i mean that that's the striking part but then it gets a whole lot worse for dr fenton because not only does she realize that this is the guy who she, she'd been treating but she then discovers she's in her office talking to her chairman and um, one of the lawyers comes in and says, we need to get you out of the building because you've just been outed. The greatest prison we live in is the fear of what other people think. So her name becomes outed and everybody now knows that she's been, she was the treating psychiatrist. And it's outed in a very um, interesting way. And it's probably every person's worst nightmare is that the defense lawyer, James Holmes' defense lawyer, puts her name in a motion to the court. And that's how her name becomes outed. And, and it, it's a week later, it's a week after this happens, and so there are lots of theories on it. You know, was it done on purpose? Was it done as a distraction? Was it done as a way to deflect off of homes and put everything onto the psychiatrist? You know, I mean, there are lots of theories that it wasn't really innocuous. It wasn't just a life. I mean, I, I mean, I would like to believe that it was uh, inadvertent, but we don't know. We don't know if it was or not. I mean, it certainly would never be on, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't even cross my mind to put somebody's name in a document like that. I mean, we're so careful, even in, you know, or any number of cases where you use, you know, monikers or initials or things like that. So you're protecting the victims. And so it, it was a pretty horrific outing and it destroyed Dr. Fenton's life. I mean, she had, uh, an, I mean, she went into hiding. She was, she received death threats. She was completely vilified. She couldn't even return to her house. You know, she literally had to, almost hide under the seat of the car while she was being driven to a, a friend's house and went into hiding. I mean, she, she had to leave the, the state at one point, you know? I mean, she had a, a full roster of patients that she then had to reschedule and maybe never be able to treat again. I mean, so it really disrupted her entire life. I mean, everybody wanted her head on a stick, you know? It's like, this is... This is your fault. And that's understandable. I mean, there is so much 
rage over these these incidents. You want to be able to project it at some someone or some person or blame something, and that's a that's a natural response. But in this particular case, it, it wasn't the truth. You know, it wasn't what happened, and she couldn't defend herself, and that was probably uh, even more traumatizing. You know, I mean, never mind being out and having death threats, but now you can't even speak in your own defense as to what happened and what you did to try to prevent something. So that just added and compounded to, to the trauma. In their last moments, People show you who they really are. People have to understand it's easy to, you know, we, especially nowadays, we see something online, we see something happening, we take a simplistic view of it, that we live in a free society. We want to be protected. And yet, after six sessions, there is criteria to go to authorities, break confidentiality, do whatever. And, oh, you know, if a, if a therapist or someone know, or a priest knows this person says, I'm going to go kill my mother, it did not rise to a level that has criteria that, yes, you must act. She really did the right thing. She did do the right thing. I don't think she could have done or would have done anything differently in hindsight. And that's the, that's the real rub of it. I mean, she, she really did above and beyond. She was hypervigilant with, uh, with Holmes because of the feeling that she had. You know, and, and I think, I mean, with the resources she had at the time, I don't know that she could have done anything different. Had she had red flag laws, for example, that were in effect in Colorado at the time, that would have been yet another resource that she could have, uh, you know, possibly gone to. But, 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 you know, she didn't really even know that Holmes had, a, had amassed any weapons. You know, she didn't have that criteria. So, you know, it's hard to say whether that would have actually even been another resource. And I think people are afraid to report things as well. I mean, you know, even even with red flag laws, a lot of times people are afraid to take that action because, you know, they don't want to be sued. They don't want to be, I mean, what if they're wrong? I mean, I, I think they should add something to the red flag laws, which is, you know, protect the false positives. If somebody's wrong, don't vilify them. Don't, you know, have them lose their job. I mean, it's better to be wrong than to have a mass shooting, you know? So I think I think things definitely still need to be tweaked in that. In that area. Well, I think it should be. I, I've never studied the laws. I know what they are. I think we just passed one in Rhode Island and I should read it. But it's like we have Good Samaritan uh, hold harmless laws. Yes. Right. I know it's better to err on the side of caution. So, so now we go, of course, uh, she must have again because of, um, of, of various things with the defense attorneys. I'm assuming she did. Uh, she was required to testify. And she was required to testify. So she, I mean, this was the other thing that is, you know, it's so difficult. I mean, not that a lot of these cases have gone to trial. I mean, now that we've had some trials, but at the time, you know, Holmes was the first one that survived it. So they never had a trial for a mass shooter, you know? So, so there was a lot of, of lead time and prep time. So she had about three years to get ready <laughs> for this. So, and three years under a gag order. Which is really, really difficult. So, you know, in that three-year period, she had to figure out how she was going to stay employed, stay in hiding. She wore a bulletproof vest, you know, where she went because she was getting death threats and she was literally had a target on her back. So for all of that time, if you can imagine the stress level, you know, trying to maintain her position and also having to relive these six sessions 
for the next three years. I mean, that is trauma. And that is, you know, and that's really what I think this book is meant to highlight is this whole ripple effect of trauma. It doesn't just, it, it affects an entire community for a very, very long time, maybe forever. I mean, it's not just the survivors, but it's the first responders. It's Dr. Fenton. It's the defense attorneys, the prosecutors. Everybody is impacted and affected in, in horrific ways. And so for Dr. Fenton to have to testify, so let me just add this. Not only was she preparing for the criminal trial, but she was also preparing to be sued for malpractice. So she was having to go through that you know, for these, these potential lawsuits that didn't even exist yet. She was having to prepare for that. So her whole days were monopolized by having to relive homes. So you know, it's just this, like, she couldn't get away from it. She couldn't, um, you know, she was having to review the questions and the potential, you know, she was doing mock trials. And so by the time she actually testified, she was escorted there in a bulletproof car into under a tunnel so that people, you know, they actually had snipers on the roof of the courthouse so that she wouldn't get picked off when she appeared to testify. I mean, that's the kind of stress and trauma that she endured to testify in this case. So it, it's really quite extraordinary. And, and a lot of that you know, a lot of the delay in the trial, of course, too, was dealing with Holmes's notebook, which, you know, really detailed in kind of a, a confusing and strange way, but it certainly did detail his plot, you know, his, uh, his thought process, his plan to kill. And it was sent to Dr. Fenton the night of the mass murder. So she didn't even have access to that for a long time because it was kind of held up in, in court hearings. So she didn't really know any of this stuff. And I mean, that's the part that is, is really extraordinary about this case. Holmes wanted to communicate with her that he had actually duped her. I mean, that's, that's the interpretation, you know, he wrote all this down. She knew none of it. He was going to send it to her when she couldn't do anything about it. Forgive my laughter. I have a condition. The book is Aurora, and uh, it is a compelling story. A couple uh, questions just to, to, I think we, I hope we've interested the audience in getting the book. It's well-written. Uh, it's easy to understand. We don't get down in the weeds of, you know, uh, how many rabbits he killed when he was a child or something like that. It's more concise on, on because it's her story when she comes across him and, and going forward from that. What was, I'm just curious, what was the, I know it's in the book, what was the malpractice uh, claim that she should have known or that, she, that somehow she got in, she let information out? Well, it was the anticipated malpractice was that she should have, you know, done a, 72 hour mental health hold or you know i mean it, it was sort of a it was an anticipated you know this is what you're going to be grilled for and was was the was the case brought and did anyone win damages against her no no nothing actually happened with that 
Um, but it, it sort of, she went through a lot of it. She went through depositions. She went through a lot of the, the tortured questioning for those cases, but nothing, she wasn't sued and she you know, didn't wind up having that. When I came across this case uh, and it was referred to me uh, by your publisher, and um, I made a conscious decision not to uh, try to reach out to Dr. Fenton. I think she's been through enough. Um, again, I hope this book does, uh, you know, help her a little bit in, in making the public understand uh, what happened. This case will be out there forever. So everybody's going to know the name Fenton forever. Um, what is she doing now? You know, um, she's she's managed to... Uh kind of reinvent herself a little bit. I mean, she's still a working psychiatrist and uh, still sees patients and has managed to, you know, makes, make a, a, I mean, she's made a lot of changes, obviously, in her, in her life since this book. And, and I think that was necessary for her own, you know, peace of mind and, and mental health. But, um, but yeah, I mean, she's, she's very resilient and really just, a, I think, a champion for, for mental health. I mean, she, she's always been an advocate for that and has always wanted to, that's why she got into the profession. I mean, she actually has two medical degrees, you know, so she, she really, really wanted to, to help people. And I think it's, it's such a shame that this case that James Holmes happened to her, but in a lot of ways, um, she can be sort of the, the voice for the silent, you know, the people that can't, can't tell their story. I mean, she can tell the trauma of this through her own experience. And so I think it was very courageous of her. Now, as that. I read the first a part of it, of the book, which is covering her, her sessions with him and her concern and her conversation with colleagues, her bringing in colleagues, not trying to think she knows everything. If And I want, again, that's a big part of the story. And, and I know you know that. That's why you did it. But I hope that people will look at that because her her concern, her reaching, her discussions with her colleagues, her, 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 you know, angst over all of this, not even dreaming that something bad would happen. Just I'm presented with something that I, in the, in the uh, guise or the body of James Holmes, I've never been presented with before. And if nothing ever happened, he went off, killed himself or ended up somewhere in prison for robbing a bank or something that she still would probably beat herself up for a long time. I couldn't help him somehow. Why? With all my degrees, as you say, all my experience, I'm and I even bringing up, let me bring in a guy, maybe none of this work. And she had no vision that he was not reachable. I know that's it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, that was and that's really sort of the the underlying theme of, of all of these mass shooting cases is that it's really impossible to spot a killer. It's impossible to spot one of these people. They don't have a profile per se. You know, there's, there's a, there, each one of them is, is unique in their own way. And I mean, many of them, I mean, other than most of them are men and most of them are between the ages of, you know, 18 and 24, really that's the common denominator, but Many, many of them have never, you know, they don't have a mental health history. They haven't sought any type of mental health treatment. You know, um, they come from good families. Many of them come from, you know, upper middle class families. I mean, it's really, really hard to, to spot them, to know who they are. Uh, he obviously was convicted 
went to prison uh was uh, again i'm trying to remember was there the possibility in that in colorado of the death penalty and they just didn't go that way or how did it end up that he after this massacre ended up in prison not on the gallows there was the death penalty at the time it has since been repealed um but he was spared the death penalty by one juror so and that that poor juror is a you know I mean, that, that in itself was interesting to write about. I mean, being a death penalty lawyer, um, it was interesting to, to really get into the mindset of what that must be like when you're trying somebody like Holmes and, you know, obviously the state wants the death penalty and you have one holdout juror. And that's really what defense lawyers are, are aiming at. They're aiming that that one person that... Right you know, they can create reasonable doubt with. And so that's why he got 3,000 years in prison. It was the longest sentence in U.S. history. Ladies and gentlemen, I have never had a, more fun, and I know that sounds corny with this kind of, but it was such, it's such an amazing, you have to pick up the book. And the name of the book is Aurora. And there's the subtitle, of course, The Psychiatrist Who Treated the Movie Theater Killer Tells Her Story. And the, the psychiatrist is Dr. Lynn Fenton, and her story was told to and told to us by Carrie Drobin. Um, so, Carrie, you must you say you write in other books, and I will pick some of them up. Are they all true crime, or do you do uh, fiction? They're all true crime so far. Oh, boy, you'll be back again, I hope. Um, <laughs> so tell us about your website and stuff where people can find that stuff and maybe leave you an email or... Um, my website is just my name. It's carriedrobin.com. And all of my books are on Amazon and they're also on my website. So you can read all about them and click onto them. Uh, so this has been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I took the blood that wasn't mine to take. That final quote was not from the movie The Dark Knight. That was a quote from James Holmes himself. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, I hope you'll tell your friends. They can link to all past podcasts by going to the podcast website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. There they can also leave me an email by clicking on the email link. In the meantime, until we meet again, please stay safe. And for God's sake, don't murder anyone.